Welcome back to episode 48 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, a podcast where Ben and I go th- along with the readings of our chronological reading plan, discuss the most interesting bits, and answer any questions that you may have. And there are two questions for us to talk about this week. Excitingly, the first question is, I think, going to be an interesting one. This was given to me, well, I won't say who gave it to me, um, but <clears throat> it is regarding 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, these passages are used to discuss a rapture. You did not mention the rapture. In your episode. And the person was curious to know if you believe in a rapture or if you think these verses are saying something else. Hmm. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where are we specifically? Verses 13 to 18. Yes, yes. So Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, <clears throat> so like the question asker, asker asked, those verses are often used to talk about you know, what, we, what people commonly call the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture. And I think that... I would say that I believe that what Paul's describing will occur. Okay. Do I think that that means it's going to be exactly like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins describe it? No, I do not. <laughs> not for one minute. Okay. And the only the thing I would add is, so Paul Paul wants the church to be encouraged. He says that over and over again, right? I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to encourage one another. And it isn't so much about what's going to happen in the end. Obviously, he's describing that, but it seems to be that the the inciting issue here is, well, what's happened to the Christians who've died? Like, did they miss the train when Jesus comes back? Are they going to be part of that? And Paul's saying, absolutely. In fact, we will not precede those who have died in Christ. They're, they're, they are the forerunners, you know, and we're, we're the ones who will kind of come up behind. And so I think, again, it's just one of those things where, we, we don't want to lose the emphasis that Paul himself has put on these things in order to, like, amp up the part that, that we get excited about. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not, deny, like, I'm not denying any of that, but just to say again, he brings this up in service of wanting to encourage the church that those who have died have not been le- will not be left out of what's going to happen, right? But in fact, they're they're the forerunners, and of course, not all of the Thessalonians are the forerunners because they're all dead, long, long dead. You know, so it, it it's unclear. You know, did the early Christians or did some early Christians think that Jesus was going to return very quickly? I mean, it seems that that's true mm-hmm. as you read the letters and as you read some of the documents outside of the New Testament. And I and I don't think they were wrong to think that. You know. Um, but and so I think it makes sense that if you think Jesus is coming back, you know, which of course I guess we do too, you know, any day now, you know, it's like, well, oh no, you know, my my friends and family have died. Like, are they 
are they forsaken or are they somehow left, you know, uh, left behind? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, now that they, <laughs> now that they have died. <clears throat> yes. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I know that for a lot of the folks in our church, the doctrine of the rapture in the specific way it's been couched by the Left Behind series is very important to them. So I don't want to... Uh, I guess all I would want to say is the Bible is the Bible. Right. And so let's think about that. You know, these kind of imaginative constructions can be helpful and I'm not denying that, but there are, but that is what they are. They're speculation, they're imaginative constructions. And so we should, we should hold those far more loosely than we, you know, hold the scripture. And I'm not saying anybody, you know, but just, I think that's always a, a, uh, an encouragement. I think that I would have that, you know, yeah, let's not, think too much of what you know some dudes say but let's let's try and stay focused on what the dudes inspired by the holy spirit said that's great Uh, i agree with that completely and speaking of the um, belief that seems to be present uh was present in the early church and we can see some inclinations of even in the new testament that jesus was going to be returning soon one of the best ways i've heard this talked about is is to think about salvation history as a play a dramatic play with acts Right, and so Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and so the the last act of the play is the the church. It's after the resurrection of Jesus, and so we are in the last act of the play. The play is ending soon, meaning there are no more acts to come. And I I find that to be helpful. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that promises us or tells us how long this act is going to be. And for two thousand years, people have been trying to figure that out and guess, but. It is apparently God's will to wait. <coughs> Tried to hold that in. It is apparently God's will to wait and um, until his time is up. So that was a great answer. We do have a second question. This was posed to me, but I think that um, me asking it to you makes sense. And I'm tweaking the question a little bit. So we are reading chronologically. And one of the things that's noticed here that this person noticed is that the the books are not written in the order um, that we are – we're not reading them in the order yes. that they're written in the Bible. <clears throat> Why are they put in the Bible in the way that they are rather than in a chronological order? Oh, yeah. That's, that's – yeah, that's a – This person asked specifically about Romans and 1 Corinthians, but I think that it's a better question to take it as a whole. I mean – as far as I know, we don't we don't really have like a we all all we have is guesses. Like no one ever you know wrote down that here's why we did it this way. <laughs> we have early opinions, but they're not from the people that made the decisions. Uh, the Gospels, I think it's a little less. I mean, I guess the ancient opinion was that Matthew was first, and we're pretty confident that John was last. So the Gospels seem like they maybe are are arranged in order of. Of when they were written. What the ancients thought was yeah. the order they were written. If yeah. Matthew was first, you know, then then that kind of makes sense. The letters, it seems, well, I mean, it is true that they are arranged longest to shortest. Uh, so you have the, Paul's longest is first, Romans, and then you go down by length down to Philemon. And then I believe the pastorals... Well, I guess that's not true. James is shorter than Hebrews. So I'm not sure how... Or not well, the pastorals. Paul's letters the, are arranged uh, longest to shortest. generals are just in there because <laughs> if they were longest to shortest it would be like hebrews first john first peter james second peter second john third john jude oh and i guess revelation revelation is the longest of them all so it'd be revelation first <laughs> well it makes sense why revelation's at the end yes <clears throat> um 
So that's why the Paul's letters are arranged the way they are, longest to shortest. The general epistles, I don't know if we really know the rhyme or reason. Maybe it's it's related to when they were written. I also don't know, and maybe you may know this, Clayton, but like, do Orthodox or like other, is that just a Protestant ordering or is it is this New Testament ordered the way it is? My Orthodox study Bible has the books in the in same that order. order. Okay, I just wondered if maybe it was more recent than we're thinking that they settled. <laughs> I'm checking. <clears throat> Catholic Bibles is the same ordering. But I just wondered yeah. since Orthodox was further back. It is the same order. <laughs> yeah. So, again, makes sense why Revelations last. You know, and, and we talked several times with, with the Old Testament, especially that, I mean, there's a Jewish ordering, traditional Jewish ordering, and then there's a Christian ordering, which, I mean, there are significant differences between those two. Um, and, you know, both of them kind of make a big, a bigger point, you know, kind of about what the covenant is and, and, and where, where it's headed. The New Testament, I mean, I guess there aren't any alternative orderings, so we can't really compare and contrast it with anything. Um, but I think you definitely see in just the big picture, they are, they are kind of arranged, you know, that the gospels are sort of the Torah, so to speak, again, like the foundation stones, and then you have the prophet or the, the history, I should say, in Acts, just like you have Samuel and Kings Chronicles. And then the prophets would be the epistles, the letters to the to the churches. Um, James is kind of like a New Testament Proverbs. So, I mean, you can you can see that there was some, you know, it mm-hmm. seems like there was an intentionality behind kind of ordering them because uh, all of Paul's letters predate the Gospels. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I mean, some conservative scholars date Mark very early in the 50s. And if so, it would be before some of Paul's letters. But generally, if it was a real chronological, you know, then yeah. all of Paul's letters would have been first, the first things we read, <laughs> or, you know, for the most part. So anyway, <clears throat> yeah. do you have anything any, anything else? No, to that was a, f- a wonderful answer. And I'm I'm thankful that it is that way because Romans should be the first letter of Paul's we read because it really is... I mean, it's his masterpiece, and there's so much in it. it. It feels appropriate that that's what we get first. And then everything else can be taken as, as addendums, add-ons, or different directions of, of certain points. But the meat of what Paul has to say can be found in Romans. Speaking of Romans, we are looking at the end of the book of Romans, or as Pastor Ben says, the mid-beginning through the end of Romans. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter five through the end of the book, and we're going to go through it verse by verse. So I know that's what you want to do. It is so much what I want to do, <laughs> but we but can't. We just can't. We just can't. so. And you and you kind of touched on this. No, you didn't just touch on it. You did a good uh, uh, overview of it last week. But just the situation, right? So, mm-hmm. so Paul, and I don't think it's wrong to say it's Paul's masterpiece or anything like that, but. Just to remember that he wasn't he wasn't just writing some essay into right. la la theology land like this was to a specific group of people in the capital of the empire who were dealing with specific problems. Paul is obviously applying the truth of the gospel and the proclamation of, of what Yahweh, the creator covenant God has done in Jesus as Jesus, you know, and uh uh, but he's not just, he didn't sit down to write, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but again, I think we caricature Romans yes. as this theological essay, and it isn't that. It's it's a letter to a group who's, who's dealing with specific issues. 
for the Roman Christians, as, as Pastor Clinton talked about last week, the, the Judeans, the Ju- Jewish Christian groups had been exiled from the city by the Emperor Claudius. And now they're, oh, and now they're coming back after a few years, but then the Gentile Christians had probably taken over the, the gatherings, potentially had taken, I shouldn't say taken property. There was no way to know that the Jewish Christians were ever going to come back. Right. But well, they had, took it thinking it was free. Well, yeah. sure. And maybe, and for all we know, maybe some of these Judean Christians were like, we have to leave. You may as well run our tile business. Uh-huh. See you. <laughs> Never. <laughs> if the rapture happens. <laughs> um so we don't know, you know, I'm not saying I wasn't trying to cast aspersions on the Gentile Christians. We don't know, you know, that may have very well been the case. But then all of a sudden, ta-da, they're back a few years later. And I think rightfully would like to step back into their their property and their concerns and their churches. So there's obviously a lot of friction about that. You know, so Paul writes Romans to try and, and help the churches. And I said before, when we first got to the letters, you know, in Galatians especially, that that Paul's concern, rightful concern, is for the, the all the churches, Judeans and Gentiles, to be one big happy family, holy family in Jesus, because that's what God wants. That's what God is doing in Jesus. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, knows that like very deeply to his core, that, that what is happening now is that the covenant with Abraham is being fulfilled, that all the nations in the world will find blessing in the seed of Abraham, mm-hmm. which is Jesus the Messiah. And so I think what we find in terms of what you were, you know, in terms of what does Paul think about the old covenant, I think that that one of my questions would be, well, which one? Because there's a couple, (laughs) you know, and so I think that Paul's in agreement that the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled and done. The Abrahamic covenant is ongoing, you know, and God is still faithful to Abraham. He talks about that in chapter four, and he talks majorly about that in 9, 10, and 11. You know, that God is not finished with right. the Jewish people. You know, they're, they're still part of what is happening, Christian or otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, I think just in, in a very condensed form, that's that's maybe how I would respond to that, is that God is still covenantally obligated, covenantally bound with the Judean people. Uh, and that the, the growth of the Gentiles within the new family of God is part of the evidence of that faithfulness because those were the original terms and promises of the covenant. Like God being faithful to bring in Gentiles was the point. And so mm-hmm. I think that some Christ- Gentile Christians may have been saying, well, the churches are mostly Gentile, so God must have turned off his grace to the Jews. And Paul's saying, and he again, he talks a lot about this in 9, 10, and 11, um, that no, like that is that is exhibit A, that he's actually still faithful to the covenant with Abraham because that's what he promised Abraham he would do, was bring in the nations. I think you and I may see some of this a little differently. Did you, and I may have not tracked entirely and that might be my fault, are you saying that he is still being faithful to the Abrahamic covenant but the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled and completed? Or are you saying that he is still being faithful to the Mosaic covenant? I think that that the first one, Okay. <laughs> that the Abrahamic covenant is ongoing. Yes. Like that. Yes. Then it is fulfilled that. in terms yeah. of like Jesus is the promised. The Mosaic son. covenant is fulfilled. Well, no, I'm saying that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in terms of like it's no longer a promise, like Jesus is the answer, mm-hmm. but like it is still uh, in effect, in force. Whereas I think the Mosaic covenant is done. <laughs> yes, it's done. It's over. Yeah, it's done. Um, the, the So like we, you and I right now are still in the Abrahamic covenant yes, under, under Yahweh. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I think is interesting is 
the the way that Paul talks about the the Jewish people of his time mm-hmm. in connection to these covenants and in connection to the Abrahamic covenant in particular, it it seems to me that as he as he goes through, let's see, where does he mention? Where does he mention what? Let me get there. There we go. So um, Jacob and Esau are mentioned in chapter mm-hmm. nine, mm-hmm. and I think very importantly, because one of the things that's happening here is. You, you have the, the Gentile readers, the Gentile Christians in Rome, and the Jewish Christians in Rome. I mean, they're, they're at each other. The Jewish Christians are thinking it's better to be Jewish. Gentile Christians are thinking, well, look, God is done with your people. And, and Paul's saying, no, that's not the case. But one of, the, one of the things that Paul is doing is he's talking about the incredibly rich gift that the Jewish people have been given. And we, we will talk more about that in a moment. But that has the mosaic part of that. The mosaic covenant has been completed. And one of the things that happens is a lot of people now that are part of the, the family of Abraham or have been, a lot of Jewish people are now out because the way into the new covenant isn't with the Torah and it's not by being Jewish. It's by belonging to Jesus, right? It's by, it's by faith in Christ. And one of the things we see with the Abrahamic covenant is you just get two generations later and you have t- twins that are born and one is chosen, the covenant is going to pass through them and one is, one is out. And the, that's difficult. I mean, when you, when you read Genesis, Esau seems like he gets a raw deal. Um, he gives up his birthright. And I think what Paul is saying here is that the Jews who do not accept Jesus are giving up their birthright um, to be part of the new covenant. And, and I think that that's, that helps us a little bit to see that he's not saying God is done with them completely, that he doesn't, he doesn't care about them anymore. What he's saying is there is a new family of God that's being formed, and they have an option to be part of it, and many of them are giving that option up. And he later says he hopes to, to encourage them to join by what he's doing as an mm-hmm. apostle to the Gentiles and, and all of it. But there's the way into the covenant is by faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and... I think the only thing I would tack onto that is just in keeping with this idea that the covenant with Abraham is is open and ongoing, mm-hmm. that it was always about faith. You know, like it's not, and you didn't That's say That's Paul's this, point. Right, yeah. that it was always about faith. You know, that never changed. And that even when you think about the Mosaic Covenant, like the, the people of Israel, they were already children of Abraham, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because they did nothing. They were just born According to the flesh, right. as Paul would say. And God rescued them before they did anything. I mean, I suppose they painted the blood on the doors. Uh, but, like, there was no Torah, you know, no covenant on the mountain. And he saved them first. You know, and so it's like faith and salvation precede law, you know, and obedience. And mm-hmm. that's always been true. That was true in the Old Covenant. That was true in the New Covenant. I think some streams of Christianity, uh, I think, muddle that a little bit. You have to get your life right before Jesus right. will take you. Or that the Old Covenant was all about no. law and obedience. I mean, you're, what you said mm-hmm. also, but law and obedience and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, actually, it was never, yes, there's a lot of law and obedience. We all just read it six months ago. You know? <laughs> but, but that all comes after. Even yes. with Abraham himself, the circumcision, all that comes after God comes to him, chooses him, mm-hmm. prom- makes these promises to him, and Abraham believes him. And that's really, I mean, that is Paul's major, I think, point kind of carrying through chapter four, right? As he's, he's looking at Abraham as, as our father in faith. Um, and you can see, you know, throughout Romans that Paul really, in some ways, he, he re, he, <laughs> how should I put it? Like, I, I kind of see him tracking with 
the structure of the Old Testament like all the way through the letter. Mm-hmm. Like that you get the Exodus in 5 yes. and 6, the passage through the water. You get Sinai in chapter 7 yes. with the law. You get the arrival in the promised land in chapter 8. You get the kings and the exile 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. And then you get the kind of the quote unquote end times, you know, when all the Gentiles are coming in. Yes. Towards the end of the book, which is when he actually brings the the hammer down, so to speak, on what he, the actual specific things he's he's written to them about <laughs> here, here at the end. <laughs> Can you imagine what it must have been like to listen to this in church? A whole bunch of Gentile and Jewish Christians tense with each other. Paul's mm-hmm. written a letter. He's got the respect of both groups. And, you know, maybe you've heard about the letter to the Galatians. So you assume that this is going to be a 20 to 25 minute ordeal. And then you you get Romans and holy smokes, um, yeah, this would have been a lot to take in. Yeah, um, one of the things you mentioned is that it's been by faith the whole time. You know, it's not ever been about works. And one of the preconceptions about that we can have a lot of times, like you said, is that the old covenant is about earning salvation, and they they understood that faith and faithfulness were part of the covenant from the beginning. One of the things that we make the mistake of is we hear works and we think of it through the lens of the Reformation, right? Mm -hmm. Which is 1,500 years after Jesus, which is trying to fix misreadings of of Scripture by saying you can't do things that somehow earn God's favor. But then we hear Paul say the word works and we think that he's talking about exactly what Martin Luther was talking about. And that's just not the case. Paul is talking about specific acts from the Torah of obedience by God's people, like circumcision, like synagogue, like prayer, and so on. And, and one of the things that he's, he's saying is that you've, you've mixed this too much. You've somehow taken in the idea that, that God's favor rests with Torah. And it's not that. There's actually a, a different vehicle through which God's favor is, is found, and that is Christ. It's not, it's not the Torah. And I think that that's a really important distinction for us to make. We can unfairly um, look at the Old Covenant, which Paul does not have bad feelings about. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he speaks very positively about the Old Covenant. But its purpose seems to have been, and we didn't really say this yet, but its purpose seems to have been to draw sinfulness to one point, right? He even talks about how... The covenant with Moses. Yes, yeah. the covenant with Moses. You have these... You have these laws, and because of the laws, your sinfulness is increased because you are breaking the right. laws over and over again. The Gentiles aren't out. They're not, they don't get a free pass just because they didn't have the law because death came in through Adam, right? And it's, right. it's reigned. But, but the Jews are where this all focused, and because that's where it all focused, it created an opportunity for the redemption that comes through Christ to be in that same, that same place. And that seems to have been the purpose for the, the Mosaic Covenant, and it is now done. But none of them thought that they somehow were earning God's, God's favor. Well, I'm sure some of them did. But the idea wasn't earning God's favor by, by obeying laws. Well, it was, yeah, or just that, and I know that, I mean, I'm sure that there are, like, I can understand why people kind of hear this sort of thing, read all of this, and then kind of boil it down to, okay, so we're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ not by anything we do. And that's what Paul ta- Paul's talking about in Romans. Like, all right. I mean, yes. <laughs> well, here, and, and this is just my, here's why I think it's important to try and, and, and unfold a lot of this again, is that it was not, Paul was not writing 
to people worried about whether or not they were saved or asking questions about how to be saved. Yes. And that's a very important thing to remember. That's not who Romans was written to. Romans was written to Christians who thought that the other Christians weren't saved. Yes. And weren't part of the covenant or were community. Less. Yeah. Or were somehow less. Or who needed to do something else in order to really be part of God's people. Those are two very different things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so there is a social, what we would call like a social element I think to what Paul's doing in Romans, that if we just stick to the Romans road, sort of here's how you personally can be saved, that's all true. And that needs to be taught and proclaimed to people. But we're, again, we are emphasizing what Paul is not himself emphasizing. And I think that we just need, we ought to be very careful about that. Paul didn't write a tract. He didn't write a theological right. essay. He didn't write, he wrote what he wrote. You'll notice that the Theo bros, I feel like, tend to ignore 9 through 11. Like, it's not even there. <laughs> well, they love it when they're or talking about they predestination. Will, I was going to say, or they will pluck out, you know, individual sentences and make much about, you know, but it's like, but but the, the argument that Paul's sustaining all the way through is not given, I think, it, it's, it's, proper, uh, it's proper place because it, because the the how do I get saved element is there, and I'm not denying that, but it is not the central focus. The central focus is who is part of the people of God and how do you become part of the family of God. Again, yes. that, incl- that includes this issue of salvation, but I think it's just important to be, keep clear in our minds that Paul was not writing to people who were worried about whether they were saved or how to get saved. They, he was writing to people who thought that the Someone other people in their church wasn't saved <laughs> because they hadn't become Judean, you know, mm-hmm. because they hadn't taken on these trappings. Or because God or, was done with right, the Jewish Right, because people. they hadn't let go of these mm-hmm. these markers of, of Judean identity. Yeah. Yeah. And that change. I mean, I don't know when that shift in my understanding of Romans occurred. I, I was at Calvary. Um, it was one in crazy morning I was doing devotions and I was reading a commentary all the way through scripture and it pointed me to a different commentary for an author I liked and so I got that commentary and I'm five pages in and and I had just I had imbibed this other way of reading Romans that it was about that it was a manual of how to be saved um it I've heard it referred to as the spiritual warfare reading of Romans you know the whole thing is about us and about about what we need to do to be saved and so Every time that Jewish um, people are talked about, it's always the nation of Israel, um, unbelievers versus, you know, mm-hmm. Gentiles are talked about. It's, it's, it's believers. Uh, every time law was talked about, it was, the, or works, it was this idea of earning salvation or trying to earn God's favor. Um, and when you, when you really grasp the background of what's happening and we stop bringing our questions to Romans, but we let Paul tell us what he's wanting to tell us. And then we ask questions of that. That will change, I mean, so much. I love this book. It's complex and it's beautiful and it's magnificent in scope. But it's it's so much better when we let Romans be Romans instead of try to make Romans speak directly to us in our current context. That's not what I meant to say. Answer our questions <laughs> for, based on our own context. Yeah. Well, and there, and again, it's a, you know, we're on a journey. We're all on a mm-hmm. journey. I'm sure in 15 years, we'll look at this and be we'll like, be how like, could we have been so wrong? <laughs> well, not so wrong, but just, you know, we all have our own blinders sure. and the Holy Spirit in his time slowly, you know, lifts those things. And so 
and, and and you're not saying this. I mean, I think that I think that these things are complementary ways of reading Romans, right? Like, mm-hmm. so we should we ought not leave behind kind of the Romans road. Oh yeah, sort of a thing. it's part no, of no, it. No, I know, and I'm not saying you're not saying that, but just that again, we should we ought acknowledge that that is focusing not where Paul's focusing. Yes, which is okay as long as we know that that's what we're doing. <laughs> Well, yeah, because then you do it with humility and care, and, and you make sure to not emphasis, contradict what Paul is trying to slash do. the Holy Spirit's emphasis is elsewhere, you know. Yes, and we just we just should know that we just should know that. I uh, an excellent excellent book I read. I think it was maybe last summer. Uh, was is by uh, oh gosh, the Eastern Eyes. No, I actually didn't like that very much. I didn't either. I was surprised you were so excited about it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Um, Scott McKnight, Scott McKnight's book, Reading Romans Backwards. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, very good. Excellent. It's short or short in terms of books about uh-huh. Romans. You know, it's and it's accessible. Like he wrote it to be accessible to everybody. And he just does an excellent job. His big point, And I think he's so right, is that he starts with he starts at Romans 16, not at Romans one. And the reason why he does that is he's like, look, we have to remember this was written to real people, and Paul lists many of them, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the book. Some of them are Judean, some of them are Gentile, you know. And he just goes kind of, he, I mean, it was it was just really good to focus because I think that, like, commentaries on Romans, and I get it. You spend three years working your way through. By the time you get to 11 or 12, you're kind of done. Uh-huh. The, the, the publishing deadline's coming up. And so often in commentaries, you just see they zip through the One last few chapters. huge, <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like, all right, but that's like the, the that's that's why Paul wrote right. <laughs> all one to eight is getting you in the place right. you need Get, to be, so he can the say mental architecture in place, so you can hear what he's saying in the rest of it. And so, yeah, reading Romans backwards, if you're somebody who just wants a deeper, richer understanding of Romans, I would highly recommend that as a resource because it mm-hmm. was just really, really good. Yeah. If you want a good devotional resource, I would also, so we've mentioned N.T. Wright on here a few times, but he has a For Everyone series. And Romans for Everyone is a really good way to get, and there's there's discussion books and all kinds of things that are that are part of that. But if you want a, a accessible, short, easy to read um, bit to help you see Romans as it is, I, I would recommend it as well. All right. Um, that's, we've hit on the things I really wanted to hit on in Romans, I think. There's, there's so much more. Yeah, there is. There is a lot more. And people, if you are dying because we didn't talk about a verse or a a section or a theme, write in and tell us and we'll talk about it. (laughs) I mean, I want to tackle election at some point, but maybe we can do that. No, maybe next week. Ephesians Ephesians is probably good. All righty. That was Romans and there's so much more, but that's where we will uh, conclude for now. All right. Second Corinthians. Yes. And we're at 40 minutes. Okay. So we um, spent about 10 minutes horsing around at the front. So I guess we're really around 30 minutes. Okay. So we have a few minutes to talk about Second Corinthians. Oh, good. It's not that big of a book. <laughs> um, I want to say this just so that I get a chance to about, well, let's talk a little bit about what Second Corinthians is. And then I'll, I'll say something I'm excited to say. So one of the things that we get from clues within the book of second Corinthians is we know that Paul is writing to the church, the same church that he wrote first Corinthians to. However, though it's called second Corinthians, it is probably not, or almost definitely not the second thing that Paul has written to them. He refers a lot of times to a letter that he wrote in here, a letter Mm -hmm. that produced tears. So it seems like 
he he plants this church, he leaves, he hears about conflicts in the church, he writes 1 Corinthians. Not all of the the problems were solved. In fact, there's evidence that they got worse. Paul goes back and visits for a time, then he leaves again and then writes 2 Corinthians. And it seems like or, or then he writes a letter that produced tears. It seems like that finally led to repentance, and then he writes 2 Corinthians. So there's been an ongoing drama that we have the first and the last chapters of. Um, And that's important as you read it, or else you're going to think that he's referring to 1 Corinthians and wonder where the bits that he's referring to are. Um, And that just doesn't seem to be, to me, what he's talking about. Um, Well, and there's been some discussion that 2 Corinthians is sort of a... A mix like match a of a few things that he's of, written. Yeah, yeah, a few things that Paul's written. Which and, may make sense. There seems to be a pretty clear uh, hop in, what is it, seven? I think it's a, somewhere in there. There's a pretty clear, like, it cuts off in mid-thought. There's a long section, and then it picks it back up again. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but that's, you just described the book of Romans over and over again. Like, Paul likes to do that. That's true. Well, we don't even get yeah. that. I feel like that Romans, it's, yeah, anyway, we don't, that's not... Nobody cares about that. <laughs> you and I could talk about it out, <laughs> off the air. Um, but the the my favorite chapter in the New Testament, we're not supposed to have favorites. Um, all of you parents that say you don't have favorites, we know that you're not telling the truth. Um, but my favorite in of the chapters in the New Testament is definitely 2 Corinthians 5. It's the one that has been a huge encouragement to me. Um, it is, it's one I think about a lot. I mention it a lot in sermons. Um, I just feel like specifically the section verses 11 uh, through 20 or 11 through the first few chapters of chapter six or first few verses of chapter six. I mean, those are the ministry of reconciliation is something that speaks to my heart a lot. And I see as a good model for what the Christian life is supposed to be. I just get excited about it and I will not try to make us talk about it the entire time, but we could because there's so much there. Um, we also get a lot of other things that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He, we get a lot about, or some about, what resurrection bodies will be like. Um, we get, uh, chapter 4 is really interesting, as he talks about treasures and jars of clay. Um, we get new covenant talk. We get a lot of things here. We get some of Paul. So it seems like these, these apostles, or what are called super apostles, that Paul seems to say sarcastically, have come and there's a credibility or credentials question. Like Paul was asked to provide credentials or or someone suggested that he didn't have them. And he, he first says, you are my credentials, you know, church that I founded. Um, but then he talks about the things that he's been through. And so we, we read a little bit about Paul's life at the end of 2 Corinthians that is hard and humbling for those of us that find ourselves feeling like, we are in difficult spots because of choices that we've made to follow follow Jesus. Um, I mean, it'd be tough to 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 complain about those things to Paul. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it kind of seems like that's a main, like that's part of the. If let's just assume Second Corinthians was originally basically a single letter, like that that he wrote it sort of as a response to, you know, yes to all those other things you said. But also, you know, to this this issue of kind of a a uh, crisis of authority, you know, as to whether he really counted as an apostle or not, uh, or or or, and this is related to that, whether his life is an exemplary Christian life or not, right? Because I think that 
it's from what we can gather from from second Corinthians, it seems like these super apostle characters which yeah paul's saying sarcastically you know that they are more well put together mm-hmm. they're not slowly glowing going blind they're not constantly beaten up and imprisoned their shirts are always tucked in they're probably richer than paul <laughs> you know it's like they don't constantly ask for money like he does although maybe they do they probably do uh but and so i think you can definitely like you know that tracks with our our current kind of culture of of success and beauty right that you know the pastors that we turn to who write all the books you know are like the the fit rich ones who also usually are doing some wickedness on the side (laughs) and like the poor persecuted you know bangladeshi pastor who's been laboring faithfully for 35 years well nobody knows his name he's not written any books we don't care we don't want to hear from him you know um i mean well i don't want to but like even going to like different conferences and things and how it's always like it's the, the the pastor with the biggest church he's the one you know who gets the microphone it's like all right and again, you know, big churches are great. We It takes all sorts to build the kingdom, but like it is just an odd, like why would we just assume that the man with the, the biggest church is the most quote-unquote successful pastor? Because uh, that's actually an assumption that Jesus does not repeatedly make. warns us against, you know, is, is not just following worldly success. Um, you know, so I think that Paul to the, is writing to the Corinthians. And, and again, you see this, the, themes of appearance, glory, image, are just throughout Second Corinthians, right? Yeah. It talks about the veil over Moses' face, the devil masquerades as an angel of light, the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers, therefore look on no one from a mere earthly perspective. Like, I mean, it is just throughout, you know, Second Corinthians is, is a visual, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a visual letter. I think because, yeah, the Corinthians were struggling both with who to follow, like do we follow the bright, shiny, super apostles, or do we follow piddling, bedraggled, you know, bruised Paul, and who would you want to follow? <laughs> Well, for us, you it's know, easy for us to say, I'd want to follow Paul, but that's because we live well, having had a third of the New they Testament were both written in by front him. of us, I think that, because really what Paul's saying is like, yes, I lead the exemplary Christian life, so follow my footsteps, and you too can get the crap beat out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's literally, I mean, it's not literally what he says, but I mean, that is the spirit of what he's saying. Yes. And, but, but he's right, because again, let us not forget you know, Jesus is the example, yes. and Jesus was horrendously beaten. There was beaten nothing and in his appearance to, to commend him to us. You know, yeah. and so it's like I think that that all of that comes back to you know, the Paul saying, "Look, being being enticed or 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 bewitched really by the appearance of success and health and glamour actually is shifting us away from the gospel." Yes, because Christ Himself was ugly and gross. You know, before they killed him. And then he died, you know, and he was a dead, and yes, he's resurrected now, and, and the resurrection is true. We know the Corinthians had a lot of uh, muddle about the resurrection, you know, he addresses it in both letters, mm-hmm. you know, and we do too, you know, but just, again, just that, that it, it takes us off the foundation, or we're, or we're moving away from the foundation if we, if we think that markers of worldly success and goodness are what we should follow and, and what we should be, you know, trying to emulate. Well, and that's that's true for us, not just with how we um, look for leaders or mm-hmm. look to leaders. Um, you should not judge Ben and I by how worldly successful we appear to be. Judge us always by the example of Jesus. But and how you, often we get beat up for good reasons. For, <laughs> but also, also we will <laughs> fail in been. that. Have you course. ever been beat up for a good reason? I've never been beat up for a good reason. Do you mean physically? Yeah. 
I mean, I I tested for my black belt and got the snot true. kicked out of me, that's and then true. my second degree, and then my third degree, good and then you. my fourth. Good for yeah, you. not really for Jesus though. No, not for Jesus, but good reason. Yeah, yeah. I got in a fight once because a kid thought I made a racist joke. I didn't. Oh, I guess I did. Very get... clear, I didn't. <laughs> I did get punched in the face because I stepped in front of another kid that was getting beat up. Oh, oh, it was in eighth grade. Well, that, that's I got, good. I got that's beat good. up by this giant of an eighth grader. That's a story for another time. Well, Anyways. anyway, what we've just determined <laughs> is that in terms of fights, Clayton mm. is qualified to be the senior <laughs> pastor. <laughs> and I am not. Oh, Far fewer okay. fights and never for good reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that, that getting in fights is a good good way to determine. But um, one of the other things that we get about, we see here, I think, or we can see here, Paul doesn't say it specifically, but not only should we not look to our leadership through worldly eyes, we also shouldn't look for the, through the, for the way the church operates through worldly eyes. You know, one of the things that ends up happening in churches all the time is we use sort of the business world as a model. A mm-hmm. hundred years ago, what happened more often is we used like the way that farmers operate as a model. And this is because the volunteers and the leaders in churches are, are going off what they know, right? right. Which and isn't bad. It's not bad. The people that most often volunteer to be at the top of the, the leadership organization part of the organization are ones who are very successful in the business world. And so these things are are just very normally taken on. But we have to remember that the church is not a business. And it should be the other way, that we should operate like Jesus calls us to, and that then businesses would be best looking to the way that that is and modeling themselves after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have anything else from St. Corinthians? So much, but we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, what what what's top of the list? I want to talk more about 2 Corinthians 5. But um, we can say that one of the things that's interesting about 2 Corinthians is it's one of the most commonly used books for funerals. Because right at the beginning, we get Paul talking so much about comfort and mm-hmm. compassion. And this seems to be because his last letter stung and hopefully produce some repentance. And so he is he is comforting the Corinthians as he writes to them. Um, let's see here. And then we also get this, this when 1 Corinthians, we hear about shunning um, a non-believer for certain issues. Yeah, excommunication. Excommunication. And in 2 Corinthians, we seem, whether it's the same issue or not, there seems to be a way that that should come to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Resolution. forgiveness. Yeah. 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 And then, my gosh, there's just so much. There's so much good. We preach through 2 Corinthians because it's such an incredible book. And I just would love to encourage you to read it a lot. I think the maybe the only other thing I want to point out is that in a couple of these letters, and Romans was as well. Yeah, right? Maybe I'm wrong about that. About the fundraising. Paul talks about the money mm-hmm. at the end of Romans a little I, bit. I'm not sure. Maybe. Aren't you the Romans 16 expert? I think it's in 15. Okay, then you're off the hook. Um <laughs> He, I know that he, he writes about planning to come to Rome. Well, anyway, you'll notice in many of Paul's letters that he's he, he's referencing this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, and he does it majorly in 2 Corinthians. And he has a couple chapter, whole chapters dedicated to, to giving and generosity in the church. And I think I would just say not to skip over those things because it's a lot of like and so and so was very generous and blah 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 you know obviously it's a very specific you know oh, in second Corinthians especially he kind of describes like the system whereby his different little buddies his sidekicks are kind of handling all these things but i think in in just the big picture and we've talked about this a few times because it is central to paul's 
kind of identity as an apostle. It's in 15. Okay, that, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And I think that, that this collection for Ju- the Judean church in Jerusalem for Paul is functioning as a prophetic fulfillment kind of of what the prophets described of Gentiles, non-Jewish people joining the covenant all one big, again, it's an expression of this all one big happy family sort mm-hmm. of a thing, right? And so it isn't It isn't just the Judean church is suffering, so Paul's trying to collect money, although that would be, a that would be enough for him to have done all on its own, but that he, I think that it, the reason why it comes up over and over again, and there is a big emphasis on it in 2 Corinthians, is that he rightly, I think, sees it as an, an emblem of this new state of affairs that God is bringing a new family together around Jesus, and so... You know, it would have been unheard of for, you know, these Gentiles to send willingly send money, you know, to Jerusalem to help people they've never met that are not related to them. You know, and, and yet they are now they are. Well, they are in Christ, but then they are also striving to become, you know, one big, happy, holy family in Jesus. And so, yeah, I would just say that not to, to skip over those things that there's there's a real significance to that collection that Paul's doing. I would agree. Or collections. Yeah. I think there may have been more than one, but. Anyway, this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.